If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Criminal. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it's not. This is Dr. Scott, and you are here at L.A. Not so. Confidential. Welcome back. Uh, wow. So, uh, criminal. Criminal. So, look, the reason I did that, <laughs> obnoxiously, because I really love Phoebe Judge. I really do. I'd love to meet She's her sometime. So kind of have a fanboy crush on her. Um, criminal, which is an amazing podcast, their very first episode was something that I had found while I was listening to This American Life on podcasts. Oh, okay. And the first episode was about what we're going to be discussing today, which is The Staircase. Right. Um, and, and don't roll your eyes at yet yeah. another podcast episode about The Staircase. I get it. I'm sort of over it in those ways as well. But we're going to touch on a lot of psychological issues. Yeah, but here's what happens, folks, because now in order to prep for for this episode of what Shiloh and I, what our our perspective on this is, I have found that I was exhausted by watching the entire documentary because sure. it's it's a lot. It is, and now as I have gone and done more research, I'm going back and watching it multiple times because there's so much that comes out and so many more questions that are raised. I mean, now it's fascinating to me. Right in a completely different way. Yes. So, but that first episode of criminal, right? So the, thank you. So the criminal, at least the way it was set up at the beginning, and there were some variants as the episodes came out criminal, um, Phoebe boiled all of her stories down to a really tight, intense 20 minutes. And what was presented because I was not familiar with this particular case. Me either. Was what's called the owl theory. So, look, I, if you're here at LA Not So Confidential, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this case. Yeah. Um, you give the basic, and then I'll jump in. Um, of the owl theory? No, no, no. Give the, the basic of the, the case. Like, what it is. It's- oh, okay. Um, so, just as the crime itself, there's a happily married, well-to-do couple in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, husband and wife are out by the pool one night after downing a couple bottles of wine. And she goes in to turn in for bed. And he comes in sometimes, sometime later and finds her at the bottom of the stairs, barely breathing, tons of blood everywhere. And uh, subsequently, he's arrested and convicted for her murder. Yes. So that's that's the the very condensed reader's digest version of it. And what you find when you get into the watching the documentary or getting into this case if you read any of the multiple books on it is that 
there's a lot of information. But one of the things that came up as a possibility, an alternative theory, um, which I, I'll talk about my evolution with it in a moment, but Phoebe talked about um, what's called the owl theory, that this woman, by the way, this is a beautiful house, a beautiful, expansive house Mm -hmm. with a, I mean, it looks like an estate, especially compared to us out here in California. Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, beautiful. And there was a very large balcony that led into a small landing with a staircase that looked kind of like a staircase that would be leading into a butler's pantry. So there's a series of um, entries and landings, and then there's a staircase down. Very narrow. Right. So they're in a rural, a semi-rural area mm-hmm. with a lot of wildlife, and the theory is that... Uh, while she was walking in, she was attacked by a huge owl. And the owl, with its talons, gripped her by the back of the head, caused massive injuries, massive blood loss. And in her attempt and her fear to try and get it off her head, she stumbled down the stairs, hitting each wall as she went down and really making an enormous mess at, at the bottom. I mean, sure. like, I mean we all to say, know like she made an enormous mess, but how it was, much the head bleeds exactly. when you cut it. It's and, and when you see the scene, the crime scene photos, it's, it's pretty brutal. Right. Um, but the way the theory came up is Michael Peterson, who has um, great support from a number of people. You know, the community was very divided on the subject, mm-hmm. but one of his neighbors in looking through the evidence found a piece of evidence, a microscopic pin feather from an owl that no one else had seen. Then they later found additional pin feathers from the owl. And that led to this revelation that several people in that area had been basically chased and attacked by one or more really large, I think they were barn owls. I think so too. Who have incredibly strong talons. Right. I mean they are they are they are predators. They sure. are apex predators for fowl in that area. They pick up large animals. Exactly. So it was it sounded when I sound, first heard it on criminal, I thought, mm, no, that that kinda that kind of sounds like that's a plausible theory. Sure. I think it makes sense. And it was made into such a joke once it came out. And then the more you listen to it, you realize, no, this is not a joke. Why Why is that evidence there? And then we'll, there are a couple of other things that we'll get to later that you go, when you're watching the documentary, you go, oh, yeah, that's uh-huh. completely possible. But the idea that it was completely overlooked and discounted, like it wasn't even a part of the original trial. Right. Well, so it's the owl theory isn't covered in the documentary at all. So... I found that really interesting because, yes, I hear this criminal episode. That's how I first hear about this case. And then this documentary comes out on Netflix. Um, and I'm waiting for the owl theory part to happen. And I'm yeah. telling friends who are watching it, oh, just wait. Just wait till you hear the owl theory if you haven't. Um, but it never comes up because it, it was so recent. So, um, so uh, basically, a lot of people question how the heck is there a film crew there so quickly? Because they are filming the forensic experts looking at the blood that is still covering the stairs. 
Um, and I finally found an article. I mean, even Reddit didn't have the answer, and they have the answer to everything. Reddit knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, um, Michael Peterson's attorney, um, last name of Rudolph, he got a call from Court TV, and Court TV had received a call from this French film crew who had done other documentaries on American crime stories. And they say, hey, do you have anything juicy for us? We're looking to do our next one. And Court TV said, well, contact this attorney. He may know something. And it just so happened that he had just picked up the Peterson case. So he sort of introduced it to Peterson. The film crew actually wanted to film pretty equally the prosecution and the defense. Um, And the prosecution was on board for about the first four months, and then they stopped collaborative shooting with them. So that's why it sort of takes the turn of just really kind of telling the story from uh, Peterson's perspective. So wait, it was only for four months? For that first, what? Because the first initial eight episodes spans... Mm -hmm. Several time periods, right? Okay. So the first four months is when the prosecution said, yes, we'll let you film us too. Okay. But then they stopped working with them at some point. Yeah, we'll talk about that later on. You can you can tell why they stopped it because the prosecution looked like idiots. Um, Yeah. They really looked like idiots. So the 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 original first eight episodes spans year two thousand one to two thousand four. And that was originally put together as a documentary, and that was shown at Sundance. And then in 2010, there was a follow-up done. And then just last year, there were three more episodes produced. So all of this together is now what's on Netflix as The Staircase. And there's a lot of, I mean, I'll also go, you know, if you do a search on iTunes or any of our great platforms that we're on, there are many crime um, and crime-related podcasts that have done episodes on the mm-hmm. staircase. So, mm-hmm. once again, we're hoping not to, you know, we're not listening to a lot of, like, I, I listen to Real Crime Profile, which I think is awesome, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't specifically listen to these episodes because you and I have a particular perspective which really relates to human behavior um, and the legal processes that... Uh, from a psychology perspective, right. which is, right. you know, that's obviously that's what we do here. Sure. So we're, we're going to be going on a couple of tangents here. I hope you'll, I'll try not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but there's a couple of things that I found really fascinating that I think really were not looked at at all. So just with, um, you know, those initial episodes that were done, Michael Peterson is found guilty, like I said, and he spends eight years in prison. And then in 2010, when they do the follow-up, that all came about because one of the forensic experts was found to be incompetent. One of the main star witnesses of the prosecution. Which, by the way, um, I, I have to give, as, as frustrated as I can be with the legal system at times on both sides, you know, because my job has me seeing uh, both sides of the process, Um basically, you know, 40 hours a week in this time, I really thought that justice was done because not only for Michael Peterson, because we don't, I, I mean, I'll say justice was done procedurally because mm-hmm. I still don't know whether or not he's guilty. I really don't. And, and I get more unsure the, the deeper <laughs> I go into right. all this stuff, but it's horrific that this expert promoted such 
false material. And in how many cases was it that they had to go back and basically... I want to say it was around 80, but I cannot remember. Yeah. I mean, he, and talk about, you know, one of the big problems they have with, with uh, Peterson during this whole process is, you know, the prosecution just sets him up as someone who fabricates and lives a fantasy life and lies. And then you turn around and get to episode six, maybe, mm-hmm. and you find out that, what's the guy's name? What was the expert's name? The last name's Deaver. Deaver. Okay. Yeah. You find out Deaver was lying about everything. He right. lied about his training. He lied about his supposed, I'm using air quotes here, uh-huh. his mentorship, where they interviewed the mentor and mentors going, um, he didn't work on that many He didn't cases. work on the cases. I think I talked to him casually for 20 minutes one time. Right. You know, so right. that was, and, but and he comes just, off as a really great witness. Oh, he's great on the stand. He's, he's very really confident, good. very sure of himself. And right. that's frightening. It is. Because really how many is. other people are out there sure. in that position of expert having that influence? Yeah. So so after he gets this retrial, he could have opted to go through trial again. But instead, what they did is he offered an Alfred plea. Um, so essentially, he pleads to manslaughter. He is considered a felon. But he can also declare his innocence. So he doesn't have to plead guilty but it's called an Alfred plea. So basically it's like, okay, time served. You've been in prison for eight years. But it's, it's, I think the way they do. describe it and they do, they describe it several times and, and Michael has a real strong reaction to it, which is very oh, yeah. interesting too, is that the Alfred plea is basically saying you have enough evidence to convict me or you don't know what I'm speaking. You don't have enough evidence to convict me, but I will, I am pleading guilty, although I am maintaining my, my innocence. innocence. Yeah. And as, so you don't have to risk going through another trial right? and maybe being found guilty. Right. So he ended up getting time served, mm-hmm. which he'd already done a lot of time. And he walked away. Completely uh, indigent because. And with nothing. No money. Yeah. Wiped no out. No money. But, um, okay. So that's a little breakdown of the case. Um, I want to get into all of the sort of players in the case because this yeah. is a complicated family tree. And we are going to talk a little bit about um, the psyche of family members of individuals that are going through the criminal justice system. So I think it's important for us to just sort of talk about the characters. So Michael Peterson, um, he was originally married to a woman named Patty and they got married in 1966 he went off to vietnam she went off to teach in germany she taught on the base there the military base um so he comes back from vietnam and then he joins her in germany so when he joins her in germany they live a few houses down from another couple that couple is george and elizabeth ratcliffe or ratliff i'm sorry Um, and elizabeth and patty both teach together And then George and Michael hit it off because they were both captains in the military. Michael with the Marines and George with the Air Force. So they meet this couple, Michael and Patty. They have two sons, Clayton and Todd. And then George and Elizabeth have two daughters, Margaret and Martha. So George goes back into combat in the military and he ends up dying um, while serving in 1983. So now, you know, 
Patty and Michael are kind of with Elizabeth a lot, helping her with the kids. They go over, they all have sort of like family dinners together. Um, you know, Michael might stay behind and help clean up the dishes and tuck in the kids while Patty takes their own children back home and tucks them in for the night. Um, so they sort of blend their families a little bit after George's death. Well, then just two years later, Elizabeth ends up dying. So she ends up dying in Germany and Michael and Patty then adopt their two daughters And both George and Elizabeth said that's what they wanted. That was in their wills because they were such tight families. So, so Michael and Patty take on Margaret and Martha. And then of course they already have their two boys, Clayton and Todd. Um, And then eventually Michael and Patty split up. So Patty stays in Germany. Michael comes back to the United States and all four kids then end up living with Michael in the United States. So, Michael then meets Kathleen, the the woman that we talked about at the beginning that was found dead at the bottom of the stairs. Very successful Nortel executive. Yes. Like, very, very successful. So they meet in 1986. Um, They move in together in 1989. And from all accounts, everyone said that she was really broken up over her last marriage. And Michael really helped her come out of that. And then they fall in love. Um, And then Kathleen has her own biological daughter from her previous marriage, and her name is Caitlin. So they, all the kids and Michael and Kathleen are living together. So you have um, Caitlin's biological daughter, you have the two daughters from the Ratliff daughters, the Ratliff daughters, and then Michael's own biological boys. Um, And Michael and Kathleen are married for 13 years before she is found dead. Um, And she dies in 2001. So it's kind of a mishmash. You have a lot of blended family here, but, you know, they, they show a lot of footage, like home videos and things in the documentary that it really seemed to work. I mean, it, at some point, even, you know, the girls that were adopted were so young when their parents died that when they come to the United States, you know, they end up at some point calling Kathleen mom, you know, once they're, you know, finally teenagers, preteens. Um, but Michael was definitely dad to them and Kathleen was mom. And so essentially they lost two moms and a biological father. Um, and then throughout this documentary, they're also dealing with, okay, now dad, Michael, we might be losing him to incarceration. Right. Which is going to come back to something we're going to discuss later about right. families, family members of people who were uh, accused or convicted of, of crimes of right. this nature. One of the oh. things you're probably going to, we're going to circle back around to this, mm-hmm. but the interesting thing about um, the adopted daughter's biological mother is that her death was an accident in Germany on the base where they were living. Right. Her body was found at the bottom of a staircase. Correct. So as she had tripped or there was, no, was there something there, there was, was a medical? Did she yeah. So right then and there, a doctor in Germany actually goes out to the scene and he did a spinal tap on her and was able to call it as a cerebral hemorrhage right then and there. So his, his um, conclusion was that she had hemorrhaging in the brain, had a stroke essentially when she was going up the stairs 
And her um, daughters, you know, now grown, of course, they were very small back then, but it had been told to them that she was suffering from a lot of headaches leading up to that, but she wouldn't go to the doctor. So interesting, and probably in the big picture of all this. huge bombshell in the documentary. Enormous bombshell, and, you know, at best, it's a horrible coincidence. Sure. I mean, that's at best. At worst, you know, it's somebody that's, you know, killed someone two times. Well, and so... Also kind of dumb, like, (laughs) oh, it worked for me last time, I'll try 17 years ago, um, yeah. Uh, It... Michael's the last person to be seen with both of these women. Right. It's also speculated, was he having an affair with her? Um, I still don't know what motive is unless he was going to reveal it because he ends up leaving his wife a year later anyway. Right. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Michael a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you my, my take on this. One of the things that got me really excited about talking about this is that I, myself in my undergrad years went through an experience with a, a family member, um, who was on trial. And it was a completely new, exotic, unknown, and dangerous experience for our entire family. We did not know how to handle it. There was no one to lead us through this. Um, And one of the things, I think this is reflective of the culture I come from in, in the southern United States, is that we were really taken aback at how many statements were made by the prosecution and the judge in this particular case of how the alleged criminal Mm -hmm. was devoid of emotion, Hmm. was devoid of emotion, which, you know, in in the psych world, we use a term when we're doing, when you and I are doing evaluations of people, one of the first things that we always want to describe is a term called affect, affect. It's a F F E C T affect is the physical presentation of emotional display in a person's face and a person's expressions in this way they use their body language. So it's a whole composite, a constellation of things that we look at and how someone's presenting. And we're usually trying as psychologists, is that matching up with the words that they're saying? Right. Is it congruent or incongruent with what they're saying? If someone is saying, I am, I'm terrified, but they have what's called a flat affect. Mm-hmm. Now, can someone be terrified and have a flat affect? They 100%. absolutely can. Yeah. Because there are so many other factors there. When we think of the concentric circles of uh, social influences of um, culture of origin, adopted culture, mm-hmm. uh, integrated culture, family culture, individually developed culture. I mean, that's like a, an incredible crucible right there of Venn diagrams and influences of how someone is going to present when they are under pressure. Correct. And I'll tell you, one of the f- most frustrating things is hearing pundits on television when they're commenting on people in trial. Well, she never wept a tear. So she either weeps, doesn't weep a tear or look at those crocodile tears. Uh-huh. You know, and usually it's, and sorry, but it, like it's usually some white guy investigator <laughs> on the stand <laughs> Saying, "Oh yeah, you know he was he was like um, crying, but there were no tears." And now, look right. on the other side is like we've all watched enough investigation discovery programs of live interviews when people are, and it's very clear, especially clear to me as a former casting director, when someone is acting. I mean, it's sure. it's pretty clear. But what I don't like is this huge net that people are being drawn into, and potential judgment is being made on their character and their guilt 
based on what they're presenting within court. Court is an incredibly long process. And one of the things that we get really um, um, uh, an altered perception of or perspective of is you watch TV, you watch uh, Law and Order, and you think it all happens in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. It goes on for days, right. weeks, The CSI months. effect. Absolutely. It's exactly. It's the CSI effect. And you don't understand that it's it's boring. It is. It's tedious. So on a physiological level, almost everybody involved, except for the attorneys, because this is what they do. Right. Everyone is at full adrenal burnout. Right. You know, and the attorneys are telling their client, don't give anything. Yeah. Just stay a blank slate so people don't make assumptions if they see something. Yeah. But then we interpret that as nothing. Right. Is oh, look, they're not expressing or, any emotions. Yeah. Oh, look, oh, look, he's laughing. It's right. like, well, yeah, it's been he three years since this supposed <laughs> crime happened. It, right. You know, everyone's exhausted. People are still human. Yeah. And they fall somewhere on that spectrum. So, that's my long-winded rant of my frustration mm-hmm. with this part of the legal process of how easily those kind of things are said. Right. But to take it back to what you're talking about, um, to sort of focus on Michael, um, look, Michael Peterson is odd. He is an odd duck. Right. He's not as odd as his ex-wife, the mother oh of his gosh. biological sons. Yeah. And I don't say this with any rancor. I don't say it with any judgment. I'm just saying, look... We, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little crazy here. But there's a term that we use currently called uncanny valley. And uncanny valley is when, especially in the world of robotics, as we're moving more and more towards artificial intelligence and trying to um, engineer robotics and AI platforms that present as human. One of the things that we are neurologically wired to do is notice if something's wrong. Why do we have it? It's a, it's a, it's not a genetic predisposition. It's a biological imperative. Right. That kind of bio- part of the fight or flight system. It protects you. Sure. Right. Because in the same way out of your peripheral vision, you see, you know, a quickly moving snake, your right. body is going to immediately react to it. We do the same thing when we pick up unconscious cues of disease. Mm-hmm. Like if, mm-hmm. you know, there's that thing that, if you look at a, a dried lily pod, it has the holes in it, mm-hmm. and a lot of people can't look at it without getting nauseous. Oh, yeah, wow. because it's not, it's not porphyria; that's the liver condition. But it's um it's a phobia that most of most of the population has because we rep- we it, we recognize it as disease oh, that's when there's um, a number of holes. It looks like boils or cankers. Ew. Which is gross. Okay, I'm sorry. We're not <laughs> Getting it back to the idea of Uncanny Valley is that, you know, in the process of unconsciously judging other people when we encounter them, we have sort of like, think of a, a virtual scale like um, Lady Justice has. And as we're interacting with someone, we take bits and pieces of that interaction and we put them in the yay scale mm-hmm. or the nay scale. Mm-hmm. So it's constantly going up and down. And we're looking, we start to look at things like, um, is somebody, is somebody looking at me too long? Right. Are they holding a gaze during conversation that's too intense and it lasts more than 1.5 seconds? Immediately someone's going to start going, okay, wait, how do I interpret that? Right. I'm also talking that's happening lightning fast right, on right, an unconscious right. level. Sure. But, um, 
look, Michael has this in spades. He um, walks around with a pipe, uh-huh. which is such an affectation. Like, even 20 years ago, like, really? Like, who who was doing right. that? It's an affectation. He has a stilted manner of speaking mm-hmm. that um, sort of speaks of his education, certainly. And he's, he's a, you know, he's a... He was a published writer with, right. with some success. I wouldn't say he was a hugely successful right. novelist. But the way he speaks comes off. It's stilted. Stilted and also a little elaborative, you know, as a writer. Right. So he, um, okay, pulling it back because uh, <laughs> there's so much of this. So we think about like unlikable qualities, people who constantly brag. You know, that sure, people turn off. bragging about yourself, um, talking primarily about yourself, um, unable to, you know, have a sense of humor about how you present in the world, finding the downside in everything, um, giving backhanded or underwhelming compliments, contradicting people compulsively, arguing for no reason. Yeah, now, I don't want to be around now, that person you just described. Right, you, nobody does. And I'll dark. say this, Michael doesn't really fall in that category. What he falls into is a category of what really was much more common in our society, which is just, he's an oddball. He's an eccentric. Yes. You know, he is someone that you look at and you're like, Oh, he's an interesting guy. He's, he's a little bit of, um, I mean, I can relate to this because I get called Cliff, Cliff Clavin. Oh yeah. He was at the know-it-all. I always called the know-it-all from cheers. So he's, he's really educated. He kind of has an answer for everything. Right. Um, which I think makes people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable. And I think also back to his affect, you know, kind of jokey and yes, um, inappropriate at times with what he's, I guess, what we would think, oh, how are you laughing at that when you're talking about your legal strategy? But he's in his home. He's... And once again, what we were talking about that earlier, that saturation is mm-hmm. like, okay, he's already been dealing with this. He's been dealing with the cops. He's been dealing with right. the public outcry and the, you know, sort of already judging and people get worn out by mm-hmm. that. So that's another thing that besides the eccentricity, we'll get to, cause I wanted you to touch on that another point later, the idea that, and I found this really fantastic um, in doing research on this, is the, there was an idea posited by a researcher that we are losing tolerance for eccentricity in our social structure. Um, and that's been happening more and more over the last 60, 65 years wow. because of the advent of media. And certainly, like, you know, like think about it during the golden age of Hollywood and Gene Harlow became a star and then mm-hmm. suddenly... Every woman was dyeing their hair platinum blonde and plucking right. their eyebrows, right? right? So we now live in an even more pressured society where people have Instagram models and we we look at this sort of physical perfection and we have these ideals. And then we have people who push back against those ideals and create their own paradigm, mm-hmm. which then becomes something that is standardized. So it's a reaction, right? but it is not odd or eccentric. Right. It's just you kind know, of a push and pull with the trends. Right. And then we have people that like purposely adopt. Like if you look at some of the more like interesting, I'll see you use the term interesting examples of hipsters that do these sort of outlandish costumes, mm-hmm. but they're doing it ironically 
as opposed to someone like a true eccentric, like uh, the documentary Grey Gardens, which is eccentricity dialed up exponentially to the point where it becomes a pathology. Because once again, we're looking at a spectrum, right? Right. And I'm kind of, I know these are just two examples, but do we find that there's, we kind of put people into that eccentric category who are wealthy? Because in some well, I, I think that's that a big part of it. it? Because right, because I look, like that's an element. The more money you have, the weirder you can be, right? Because we talk about that. We talk about the out here. We talk, and you know, and for some of my more high profile clients in my private practice, mm-hmm. we talk about the bubble of celebrity. Uh-huh. You know, if you're surrounded by people who are dependent on you for their paycheck, of course they're going to do nothing but say yes. They're never going to disagree oh, sure, with you. Sure. So even taking away. You know, we talk about like the rich, you know, some of the ricks that go Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. You know, Howard mm-hmm. Hughes, no one, he was brilliant and rich, and no one ever said no to him, and he wouldn't accept no from anyone. Sure. So he ended up just getting more and more strange. Right. right. So this is something that doesn't work well for Michael Peterson, is right. his eccentricities, because you're watching this going, well, you're odd. Mm-hmm. And then it's revealed that he lied about so many things about his background. Right. So this is a guy who, yes, was in the, the war arena for Vietnam, but he was not the recipient of these medals that he said he was, you know, that he presented. He wasn't injured in the way that he said he was. Exactly. He had an injury, but it was a non-combat related injury, right. but he presented it as something different. You know, this is a guy that, you know, does he have some narcissistic qualities? I don't know if I'd even use the word qualities. I would say he has some flavors. Some flavors. You know, he some has some flavors. Traits. Yeah. And he also, you know, developmentally, and I mean, he grew up and became an adult during the 60s uh-huh. in a war arena where nobody's looking at that stuff. Right. Like, you can't research who has and who doesn't have the medals. Now, when somebody tries to pull that crap, People, that's the first thing right. that Reddit gets well, on he, he, yeah. for it. He tried to run for mayor. So, right. you know, I think that's when some of the stuff might have been dug up. Um, but I think it comes across on film as lack of insight and lack of being connected with, now I'm doing air quotes, the seriousness of what this is all supposed to be about. And there's that's why a, I find it that's, fascinating because we're getting to see the insight. How often do you get to see inside the home of someone that's going through a trial? You just right. see them sitting behind, you know, a desk in a courtroom. And maybe that's what's additionally off-putting is how casual their discussions are. You see how casual their discussions are. You see that the attorneys are relaxed, that Michael's kind, kind of glib like, and joking about They're, they're glib about how it, but once again, we as the observer, not only are we seeing something that is in direct contrast to what we think a trial should look like or preparation for a trial, because we don't usually see these background things like you're saying, but we're also then projecting our interpretation and our bias, you know, I onto those things. So I'm watching these scenes and I'm looking at the attorneys um, playfully cross-examining each other and then like they come up to a point where, oh, this is going to illustrate what could possibly go wrong, but they all start laughing about it. Right. And maybe it's my bias because I've been through part of that process. So it was shocking to me, but the reality is 
this is how it goes. Well, this, this is, is how you prepare for job those to them. Exactly. You know, it's, we, it, it's just like it, some of the gallows humor that we have and how we cope with our jobs uh, as well. Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I touching back on the narcissistic, you know, flavors that he has. I found something on Reddit that I thought was hilarious and kind of pinpointed. Oh, cool. Um, so, you know, a whole piece of this, and that's why I wanted to touch on how this became a docu- documentary to begin with, because lots of people were speculating that he hired this French film crew to kind of tape everything. And people are saying, well, that's actually one of the reasons why I maybe think he didn't do it, because what guilty person would say, come on in, film crew, and film everything? Um, but this rebuttal on Reddit I thought was so great. Um, it, I'm going to butcher this, but the person that wrote it is Zafiro Injuro. And he wrote, unless you were incredibly arrogant, thought you were so much cleverer than anyone else that you would never be convicted and thought that you were so fascinating that your fascinatingness should be captured for posterity. You know, it, that sums up a narcissistic personality. And um, it does. The jinx. Yes, but what I would say, you know, and look, once again, I don't know. I, I, I still am on the fence about Michael <laughs> Peterson, but he's Robert not Durst Robert and Durst. The jeans. Yeah. yeah, he's not Robert Durst. I mean, that guy is. <laughs> well, talk about his subject. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah. Um, oh, but I, yeah, he. So there's some flavors there. There are some access to. So there's some grandiosity. There's some expansiveness. Mm-hmm. But there are moments that you and I were talking about while we were prepping for the show that I that I missed the first time around. Um, and there was, they have a, as in most high profile cases like this, they had a, uh, coach, oh, you know, right. someone who's there that I think is a fascinating job. This oh my sort gosh, of you should do that. hippie like guy comes in and he's basically giving him theater exercises, getting, trying to get him to loosen up because he's a very tight shouldered, odd walk person. He's mm-hmm. trying to get him to really mm-hmm. be more human. And, right. There's a moment where Michael starts talking about his his caring for his ex-wife and the relationship because he's describing these moments and the, the, the intimacy that they shared with each other. And it is the most genuine moment that you see out of him. And he's... It's not an acting moment. Like you can tell. And the coach even says, you don't even have to say it. Just right. the fact that you would go there and answer my question is everything. Yeah. Um, I think there's also something kind of kind of going back to like his physical presentation. You know, he has these wild eyebrows. Do you think he's had some sort of plastic surgery or there's no, like he's a slender guy? Look, he's got he looks very, kind of built at the beginning. You know, like he's taking yeah, he care was in shape, which is another thing that comes up about his yeah. you know his sexuality later on. He's right. he's got some good genes. Okay, um, he's got a very sort of aquiline profile. He's got a prominent. Mm-hmm you know, uh, prominent nose and a strong jaw, although he's a small statured guy right? and he's in shape, but there's also, that goes back to the eccentricity. The eye, like his teeth are incredibly stained by the the pipe pipe. nicotine. And, you know, that was one of the things that the, the, um, attorneys are saying is like shave. You're too old to have, uh, to have scruff, trim your eyebrows, trim your eyebrows. Um, 
Dress nice. Get your get your hair cut. Where you know he was wearing. He's doing the whole Don Johnson Miami Vice thing, right. wearing a, a, a mock tee with a blazer <laughs> or a mock turtleneck, and then and it was two thousand three, not nineteen eighty three. So I mean that's that's interesting. That you know once again you use the term insight, and you know but that's not something particularly glaring, but it is a it's a big piece, and a lot of people have to right. be coached on what to wear. I mean I've been on a jury before, and I've been absolutely shocked at what people wear to court like just really no insight about what the process is or realizing that that it's a serious serious thing oh my gosh we had um i think i had a whole semester on you know being a possible expert and eyewitness or not eyewitness um an expert called into court and like what you wear how you present yourself as a psychologist on the stand and it it kind of took me aback when I was watching the staircase that the the medical examiner for the prosecution she's up there wearing a sleeveless top and I thought I would never wear a sleeveless top in court especially really as a doctor um, but I don't know it's the south it's hot but, you know exactly but here <laughs> you know I think it's just also something that people don't think about unless I mean our our culture has moved away from more formal dressing if you look at really cool old vintage um, photos from Hollywood in the thirties and forties, everybody on the street, even lower income is wearing a blazer and a hat. Right. Like that was just standard. That was uniform. You didn't walk around in your shirt sleeves. And um, I remember one of the things after I graduated from my doctoral program, I went back to my campus and I offered a, like a three hour workshop on how to prepare for your interview for internship. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me that these incredibly smart people, talented people, didn't understand those basic things. You don't wear a sleeveless. Um, you don't wear your shiniest shirt. You don't. You, you just, you don't. And right. you, you know, some people that were not even aware of like, you know, dental hygiene. Like, here's a wonderful clinician who's got bleeding gums. And I had yeah. to take her aside and go, we got to get you to a dentist before you go. These are the things people notice and whether it's, you know, looking at a suspect or looking at somebody up on the stand, it, you know, at some level you'd want to say, well, who cares what I wear? I'm smart. I know what I'm talking about, but that doesn't matter because people are, that probably affects more careers than anything else. People just not understanding that there's, yeah, you can't, you can't control all aspects of how someone's going to perceive you, but there are things that you can't do. So, you know, Michael has some, some eccentricities, some oddities, um, which more and more in our society, I think, are, are less tolerated or mm-hmm. thought as odd. I grew up in a time where, you know, in the rural, semi-rural South, you know, if you had a, if you had a mentally ill family member or, or, you know, and I use this term carefully, if you had a crazy family member, yeah. everybody knew about it. It was like the neighborhood looked out and, right. you know, if it was something that wasn't a violent or to, to anyone, um, mm-hmm. It was just accepted. That's what it was. Well, I I remember just as a patrol officer, I can think of in the wealthier parts of the town that I I worked in, the more eccentric people. And I thought they're fascinating. You know, if they called us for something and going inside their house and seeing their artifacts that they brought back from their trip to Africa and just listening to them talk and just kind of, there's a sense of... um, kind of worldliness to them sometimes, you know, it it just, it depends, but just 
I've had some interactions that have been very positive and really neat yeah. instead of thinking, oh, what's wrong with that? Group? Well, look how far we've gotten away from the idea of the old saying that, well, she walks to the beat of a different drummer. Oh, right. right? I mean, yeah. I, I think that that yeah. used to be a lot more respected than it is right. now. Right. And maybe, you know, there's also, it's a, it's a challenging time. Maybe there's not a lot of room for that, um, economics especially. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an important part, especially in the legal process, that people may not be prepared for um, in a way. So <laughs> I wrote a note. Oh, God. One of the notes I wrote was, so here I was telling you how I do this. So this is how Sometimes I try and multitask. Sometimes we write notes we is should say out 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm at Gold's Gym, <laughs> on the ellipse machine, watching documentaries on my iPad with my iPhone in my hand to leave. <laughs> To take TikTok notes about our podcast. And one of the things I said, this is literally I said, Jesus, the female prosecutor. She pissed me off. God rest her soul. She passed away this year. Right. So Frida Black, um, she she actually passed away in July of this year. I've still not been able to find any cause of death, but she was 57 years old. Very young. Found in her home. Um, So why did you write that? (laughs) Well, look, you know, I can tie it back to eccentricity. I mean, she was um, very odd. You know, she's very odd. I mean, I understand that this is, you know, the the top edge of the Bible belt. But one of the things that, for those of you who've seen The Staircase, or or even those of you who haven't, it becomes revealed that Michael is bisexual, actively bisexual, and and had had... um, physical encounters with uh, escorts and with other men, um, not what I would, none of which I think are actually described as affairs. I mean, they try and describe it as affairs, but you don't, you don't really get the sense that there are emotional relationships that are happening. It's, you know, a release for that part of his sexuality. Right. So there's a lot of questioning that goes on about what constitutes a healthy relationship. And that actually kind of pissed me off as a marriage and family therapist. You know, I'm telling you, Look, there may be an accepted template for what is a healthy relationship out there in the world. It's like the the um, heteronormative um, monogamous couple with two point five children, the white picket fence, and that doesn't exist. No, and that's that's always been a myth. And people have always managed aspects of their relationship for better or worse. I'm not. I'm not saying that this was the way it was, should have been done, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of indicators that that the two of them had an understanding about the relationship. Right. And Frida is not having any of it. She comes no. across as very homophobic. Um, well, I, I, I find it interesting. So she, they have her as opposed to the male prosecutors kind of take the lead on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me think that the guys were like, Oh, we don't want to talk about this. We don't want to cross examine the male escort. Yeah. So she gets stuck with it, which is, or she decides, it, Hey, I'll take it. Well, it backfires on her big time. Right. Right. Which is great. So just to give the description and I don't look and I don't, I'm not meaning this and saying this in a demeaning way, but here's a very like, um, talk about not understanding how they're severe looking severe looking woman with like a very severe contrast between her hair color and her sort of chalky white makeup and and really thinly plucked eyebrows that kind of give her this ongoing surprised look and then 
<laughs> the eyeshadow. The eyeshadow. I mean, beyond what she was trying to portray Michael as with his gay porn and his contacting these escorts, none of that was more offensive than her eye makeup. It's pretty I bad. mean, it. It it is. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, and you know, I'm, you know, I, obviously, I don't, we don't know anything about how she passed. That's too bad. Nope. She, and once again, like you were saying earlier, she was just doing her job. But it was another glaring example of where she really was letting a personal bias in. And I think, you know, it was clear to me that she's being very careful um, when she's being interviewed about why she's concerned about it. I mean, she has a lot of judgment you know, just making blanket statements of mm-hmm. this is not a healthy relationship and right. this is not. And you, normal people don't do this sort of thing. And it's, you can tell that she's really um, put off by um, the pornography. Now, mm-hmm. I can under, I can okay. certainly understand that. Right. However, when the very, very charming, good-looking male escort who presents probably better than anybody he in the entire the documentary. He's the best witness. He's a fantastic witness. He's great. Um, down to earth, completely open mm-hmm. about what he does, and she turns into a, a giggling 13-year-old girl. Completely. completely. I mean, I, I, my mouth dropped open, and I thought, you're, wait, you're, this is your job. So she Pull goes. She goes from asking him, you know, what sort of sex acts would you perform with these? I mean, questions they wouldn't ask if it was a female escort at all. It, it's irrelevant anyway. I mean, if you're just saying sex acts, no, it was sex a, acts. It was a means to because, and this, you and I even talked about this in the in the prelim. We really got the impression that this was an approach. They didn't really have a lot because there was some so much conflicting mm-hmm. evidence that we're going to talk about a little right. bit later. So what we're going to do is we're going to go after his character. Right. We're going to totally disgust the jury so that they demonize him. Right. And so she she's very um, abrasive and inappropriate with her questioning. And then at some point she asks him, well, what kinds of clients have you had? Or someone, I actually, I think it was the defense attorney asked, what, what sort of occupations have your clients had? And he says, well, doctors, lawyers, uh, one judge. And then says, not this judge. You know, kind of makes a little joke on the stand, which is adorable. Yeah. And she just throws her head down on the table, mouth over her hands, giggling so hard. And just looks up at him like, you In know, a murder trial. In a murder trial. Yeah. Right. It was really, it was really badly done. Yeah, it was badly done. Yeah, and there's just, you know, um, and they they briefly interview. Oh God, what, what was the lead attorney on the the DA? Harden. Yeah, it's clear. I mean, this is a typical, you know, I mean, you couldn't find a more, especially in the light of what's going on right <laughs> now in in the in the government. Um, with the, yeah. the hearings for Supreme Court judge, um, he's just a, he's a white guy with a you know just absolutely sure of what he's talking about mm-hmm. and has no problem with saying, well, this is what we're going to do. Well, the piece that I was actually excuse me listening to this on the way to work, I wasn't watching it; I was listening to it. Um, but that stuck out to me to that very point is when they exhume the first 
woman's body, Elizabeth. And they're going to take Which had been brought back from Germany. To Texas. To Texas to be buried. So they exhume her body and they're going to bring it back to North Carolina. So the same medical examiner that said Kathleen died of homicide is going to examine this body to see what the cause of death was. He is so sure. He says, no, we haven't looked inside the casket yet. But we know that this is going to show that Michael has done this before. And it's... It's that he's so sure because he told the medical examiner, hey, this is what you're going to find. Yeah. Right? Because we need this to help our case. Um, So it's just, it's awful. So, you know, the other, we touched on this earlier. This is, again, about the problem of how we get drawn into these fascinating stories and the way they're presented by a documentary crew. The the purpose of of the crew, of the director, his job, he is there to tell a story. So we as viewers are actually, although it feels very intimate and you're right there with the attorneys, you're right there with Michael and his family, we're actually not seeing that. What we're seeing is probably miles of footage. Oh, sure. I think thousands of hours. I think 600 hours. Okay, was 600, not, used. not thousands. Was not used. Right, 600 hours. So, look, and you and I have worked in entertainment like sure. in this manner. We've seen what you, what an editor can do. Right. So you can change the tone of a story, which is a whole that making a murder, if that's the big controversy right. with what they've done. Right. And I want to keep that out there as, like, a possibility that, like, hey, I have to keep my, my mind open that I'm not really – I am basing my um, judgment of this on a – tertiary perspective right it's not even secondary version of something exactly that we're being allowed to see which is fascinating the purpose was to look at an american criminal justice system which i think it did very well yeah but then we are now taking these leaps of guilt innocence corruption right you know all of that stuff so but then so should we talk about evidence or some of the things we were about that um I think we should talk about the family members first oh. or just kind of family members in general and going through criminal yeah. justice system. Um, so I think you and I had sort of professional experience in the sense of working with offenders post incarceration. Right. You know, we are constantly assessing and doing, you know, at least weekly therapy with individuals. And we're, we want to know about their home life. We want to know about their family structure. And we're constantly assessing that and keeping tabs on that because that can speak to risk if that changes or is it unstable. Um, so we really got some good snapshots of what home life was like for convicted offenders, as well as we work very closely with probation and parole. And so those officers are actually going into the homes and telling us (laughs) the things that we're not, you know, when we get to see them in therapy for a week that we're not, you know, able to visually see. So we're getting a lot of collateral information about home life of individuals who have been through the criminal justice process. Um, and so I think the thing that stands out in the documentary is the undying, you know, devotion of these kids, the four kids, Clayton, Todd, Margaret, and Martha, to their dad's innocence. Yeah. Um, 
Caitlin. It's unwavering. Yeah, it, it really is unwavering. Um, Caitlin, the biological daughter of Catherine, I'm sorry, Kathleen, yeah. at some point after she learns about Michael's bisexuality and sees the autopsy photos, decides... Or the crime scene photos, was it? Or maybe both mm, of the crime scene and, and the autopsy. Yeah, probably all, okay. but it definitely autopsy. Um, it was. It was the ones where they had peeled, they had taken the hair off and peeled right, the skull. The, yeah. yeah. So she ends up then, you know, believing that he's guilty. Um, but it is unwavering, and so much so that actually the... Margaret and Martha had to sign off to have their mom's body exhumed. And they were like, of course, because it's going to show that dad didn't do anything. Right. You know, so whereas, you know, that might be like, well, they could twist it however they want, which likely they did. Um, They were just so, no, let's do it. Everything we can do to prove dad's innocence, let's help and do it. Well, you know, one of the things, as a marriage and family therapist, my particular education was really very much focused on uh, family systems, which is a perspective. There are many different types of family therapy, but family systems is sort of a, an umbrella term for looking at families as if it was a, a cybernetic. It, it's a, it is a an emotional, um, familial, whether blood or not, system or group of individuals that are acting in a mechanical way. So you think of it as gears that interact with each other and people might, what happens is that people sort of are given roles, sometimes ones that they don't choose, they're forced into unconsciously and consciously, and they may rebel against those roles, but there's always just sort of this desire to re- to return to homeostasis. Right. Um, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. And you, we definitely see this. I mean, we can see this, and I think this is sort of a commonality. Like you were talking about some of the um, probation officers talking about going, probation officers going into homes and just being treated really horribly by the, the wives or the kids of the right. um, of the ex-cons. Well, and it it wasn't just because, oh, you put us through all this, but they believe in the innocence of their spouse plus how dare you drag us all through this criminal justice system? And they are indirect victims. Right. I mean, they're but so they're they, having to pick up pieces when that person goes to prison. Right. And they so they have no place to put their anger. So who's going to be the easiest target in that the, situation? The it's going to be the agent. The representation. Of the government. Yeah. yeah. So when we look at this, I mean, I in the interview for um, the biological daughter. What was her name again? I think Margaret. Margaret, the older one. Yeah. Which, Redhead. Oh, no, no, I'm talking about the biological daughter of the Oh, I'm deceased. sorry, Caitlin. Caitlin. You know, Caitlin makes a, a, a turnaround and says, but I think she says something very telling. She says in that scene, this is not the Michael I knew. Right. The Michael I knew was a great father. He was this, he was this. And she just names off these positive qualities. And then she says, and yet it looks like there's a part of him that I didn't know. Which I think is really sad because, true or not, I think that she was influenced by the prosecution focusing on his sexuality. Right. And, and her aunts also oh, seem to yeah. have that perspective, yeah. which we're not going to spend a lot of we're time on because that. that's kind of this, <laughs> its own thing. But I, And it's a way to, you know, as a younger person to compartmentalize, right? Okay, right. 
I'm being told he did this horrible thing and this is my biological mom and I'm going to quote choose her over him. Um, but I'm going to make sense of it by saying I saw all these wonderful things, but that's not the person that did this. When if he is guilty, they are the same person. Right. Right. Which is a possibility. Sure. It's oh, absolutely a possibility. Totally. Totally. But the owl did it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, okay, let's, let me, let's talk about that real okay. quick. So, you know, it's been probably a year and a half, two years, maybe even longer since I heard the um, criminal podcast, mm-hmm. oh, Owl Theory. Longer, yeah. Um, and then to watch this the first time, knowing that we were going to do one of our podcasts on it and try and get all the information, and then going back and watching it the second time. And and let me tell you, folks, the, the autopsy scene and the, um, the autopsy photos and the crime scenes are brutal. Right. But I'm telling you, you look at her skull, which have two, lacerations. Two on things: them. one is there are lacerations. One of them absolutely looks like a raptor claw. It it's crazy. It, there are like two lines parallel to each other, and then a third one kind of up the middle. Absolutely. Like everyone, put your finger up. Like it's, it's like a claw. It yeah, looks it, exactly ab- like that. absolutely like a claw. And then, we are not forensic experts. <laughs> we are not, not a blood spatter expert at all, by any means. Right. I have watched every episode of Dexter, but well, I have not. But so that's one part of it. But then contrasting that is looking at the crime scene photos when they found her body, and it is such a brutal. Like it's like you're going. Oh yeah. What happened? They open with that, and I'm like, I don't need to see anymore. This guy's He's so guilty. guilty. He's so guilty. <laughs> That's not a fall down the stairs. And then, okay, so let's talk. Very, I mean, we won't spend too much time on this, but supposedly the weapon that was used, that Michael supposedly used, is what's called a blow poke. It was I a hate gift. that term. By I know the way, it's, it's kind gross. of sounds like a. Yeah, but a blow poke is basically a fireplace poker, but you can breathe into it in order to stir up the embers if you're going to, you know, bank the fire a little higher or something. So there's controversy about that. Like, I'm, I don't even remember how it got named as the weapon, but they're like, it's the blow poke. Where's the blow poke? The blow poke's missing. Well, it's missing. So that means it must be the weapon. It's the murder. Weapon. Once again, like you said, we see throughout this real evidence of the prosecution taking the wrong puzzle piece uh-huh. and trying to bang it into that over puzzle space and over, over and over again where it doesn't fit. And you know, I, I have to say, you know, I feel like they're like, okay, Peterson did this. We have to make that fit. But I also feel like the defense said, no, he didn't. The explanation must be she fell down the stairs. We need to make that fit. And it doesn't work either for me. Even Dr. Henry Lee, when he does the examination, he's poking holes in the the yeah. the homicide piece, but he won't really go as far to say, yeah, she fell down the stairs and that's how she got this, which is absolutely what a competent scientist should do. Well, okay, so sidebar on that. Okay. Henry, he's great. He's the best. That guy is fantastic. He's so smart, and yet... They didn't put him on the stand. Why didn't they put him on the stand? Because <laughs> they're racist. <laughs> because it's he's not camera friendly. He doesn't fit the mold of what they want. He has a strong accent. The mock juries said they couldn't understand him. Yeah. 
So it's like, okay, how horrible is that? Here's this guy that's a fantastic expert. He's but the leading expert right. in the world. I mean, it's it's nuts. But we're not going to use them because right. of this. You know, and one of the things, and we, we were in my living room just now using a foam um, <laughs> foam muscle roller. Like roller. <laughs> and I was like, okay, look, look Shiloh, look. It's, it's, it's twice as long as this. Here they are in a butler pantry, servant's staircase, narrow hallway, and you're supposed to tell me that this little guy was heaving back with the force needed to kill this person. With this long blow poke. With this long blow poke, and it's not going to hit the ceiling. You can see how low the ceiling is. Yeah. And then even, that was the other thing, there's there's no skull fracture. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so he's supposed to have beaten his wife with the, beaten her to death. Right. And there's no... There's no skull fracture, just lacerations. Just lacerations, which means he would have been scraping her with... I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of it because it's a horrible right, crime scene. Right, right. But that part just did not add up to me. Not Maybe he used something else. Maybe there was some other method, but it certainly wasn't the one they were trying to say it was. Oh, he put on his raptor glove and then grabbed her by the head. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's the raptor Halloween costume. Well, so that's where it falls apart for me is that... It doesn't fit forensically. Okay, let me back up. Were you going to say anything more about the blowpoke? Or was that it? I feel like I cut you off, but I can't remember. Uh, it was not something we talked about, but it was something that I remembered, is that the blowpoke was eventually found in the additional episode that they added. Right. And when they found it, it had no indicators. It was like stored in a... It was stored in, in a hot place, I will somewhere. say that. But it had not been touched in years, and it had no dents on it. It had no indications yeah. that it had been used to hit anything. Right, so right. if something of that nature was used, it wasn't the it weapon. It kind of blows out that that's yeah. the weapon. Um, I will say, you know, clinical judgment is about 50-50. It's like a coin toss when we look at research as far as making clinical judgments um, about people or coming to conclusions. So we tend to have collateral, collateral information, yeah. research, data, testing available to us as psychologists. So that's what I always think about when I go back to all this. Spec- of course, I'm sitting in my house speculating away and judging away. But if I watch something like this, but I always think, okay, if you were to ask me sort of my final impressions or what I think happened, my gut feeling, my clinical impression, if you will, he comes across as genuine and I don't think that he did it from the footage that I'm seeing. Oh, that's a good way to, but then I, then I go, okay, well I need some, some science behind it. So then, okay. Forensic evidence, the lack of skull fracture to me, there's no, that that's not a beating. The lack of skull fracture and no hemorrhaging in the brain to me doesn't mean it's a fall. So neither of those fit. Um, And then that also removes like an intruder theory as well, right? So if she was hit on the head um, with something else, there's still no skull fracture. So, I mean, that's where I turn to the owl theory and I'm like, don't need a skull fracture or brain hemorrhaging to be attacked by an owl and bleed out. Well, and also the idea that, and they talk about this in Criminal, the idea that if, if she was attacked by this predator owl with the raptor claws that would have you know there are tons and tons of uh the the, if head wounds bleed profusely because there's so much 
capillary and vein structure in the um, the skin, you know, that protects the skull. So that could easily account for she runs in from the balcony with this bird attached to her, and she trips and falls down the stairs, and it suddenly makes sense. Oh, that's where all this blood comes from. Sure. She's struggling so you know, right. violently. And she's intoxicated, you know, right. under the influence of, of alcohol, Valium. Um, so completely disoriented. Um, I don't know. It makes, it makes sense. I mean, I feel like the other two just don't fit and this could fit, I guess is my best. Yeah. So we have a, in this, in this particular story, we have a lot of sadness. I mean, mm-hmm. here's a guy that if he, you know, he's an elderly man now, you really, that's something else that's really jarring is that you forget when you're watching it because the, the hairstyles and the, the clothes are somewhat modern. You know, you don't really, it's not really jarring. So it's easy to forget that it's 2001, it's 17 right. years ago. Right. And then as they're jumping in time and then suddenly you jump to when Michael has been in jail for six years before they start the trial and he can barely walk up the stairs and he's just right. this, you know, he's an elderly man, elderly, elderly oh, sure. man at this point. He's, you see how he loses size and it's gray and yeah, elderly. And then the, his kids have kids and it's just really interesting to see that sort of entire family structure age. Um, yeah. Any, anything final? I have one final tip at the end of this, but, <laughs> Well, I was um, just going to say that, you know, you, um, you know, and these are people who are still alive, but um, once again, Michael's ex-wife, the mother of his two biological sons, is so strange. Oh, yeah. We need to get back I mean, to her a little it's, bit. It's almost worth watching to hear the cadence of her speech. This is a person who says, who doesn't, oh, you know, this is what it was, Shiloh, this is what it was. She doesn't use contractions. I know. It's the oddest thing. If I were to be in that situation, I would not be able to. I mean, it's this very stilted robot. No, she uses like automobile. Automobile, not car yes. Car or auto. Um, now, she may be an elementary school teacher teaching English to bilingual children. I thought that too, but she's teaching on the military base, and I think they're. I assumed it was all Americans. I could totally be, and I thought that too. Like, okay, is she teaching to German kids? But I have two sisters who were elementary school teachers for a, a combined total of probably fifty-five plus years right. between their careers. They don't talk like that. Yeah. So, and it, it's multiple know, times. It's I mean, there's a sentence that's like, "I got into the automobile because he," and then went to the gymnasium. And then we get back into the automobile. Like it is very strange. And she's talking to Americans. Yeah. Um, And her and his sons um, who dote on him. They have some very what we would say. um, Todd, especially Todd's a younger son. Correct. Okay, so Todd. um, In in terms of like when we're there's a term we use when we're doing psych evaluations when you, you don't necessarily say in psychological evaluation that the person is, we talk about their hygiene, we talk about their grooming, but if someone has, you know, pretty great facial symmetry and takes care of themselves, Mm -hmm. you don't say, you know, 
click, click, good looking. Right. You say well-formed. Well, you know, he is, he is a well-formed individual and he comes across with somewhat of a constrictive affect mm-hmm. and constricted means not, a, do you want to talk about blunted versus constricted? Oh, that's a hard, that? it's a it difficult a hard... distinction, but <laughs> constricted means you are controlling right. the emotions that you are experiencing. Blunted means that you are somewhat, uh, you sort of just have that turned off. It's turned off or muted, like right. through, like anger through a cushion. Yes, in a way. Okay, but okay. constricted means that this is someone who is having a very um, broad or very intense emotional experience internally, well, and as they're talking to you, they are really controlling it, and he comes off that way. I interpret that as he's really uncomfortable with the cameras. Well, he was, but he was also kind of saucy with the judge to the point where he got admonished by the judge, where the judge Mm -hmm. said, um, I don't appreciate your laughing or something like that. Right. So, but at that point, that could be a defense mechanism. It could be a defense mechanism. It could also be screw all of you. My dad's innocent. I'm not going to put up with this crap, which is something that a 24 year old at that time would probably Uh have the, Uh you know, it comes from a wealthy to do, wealthy to do family and feels like my dad's innocent. Feels you know justified. They're an interesting bunch. Very interesting bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. I just you know you think of all, all of the trauma and loss that those kids have suffered through in so many different ways, and I really feel for all of them. And well, it's traumatic. It's absolutely traumatic, and I hope all of them. And I, you know, Michael is a cipher to me to some extent. But for his children, I hope that they um, were able to get the support and help that they need. Certainly. So my final tip, like coming away from all this, never marry a Peterson. Whether it's a Scott, a Drew, or a Michael, don't do it. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? I know. I know. All right. So um, that wraps up that part of the episode. We are going to do our giveaway drawing right now. Oh, cool, 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 cool. Yeah. We talked about that. Uh, What did you you announce that on? Instagram where we did it last one? Um, So... No, I announced it on all of our social media. So we have all the names in a little uh, fedora hat right here. I know. That's, so the one wanna... Ale- that's Dr. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Alexandra, what is this my, our other colleague, calls it my douche hat. <laughs> How dare she? Uh, hi, Alex. Um, okay, so this is for, as you can see, I'm wearing my L.A. County Corners t-shirt I that know. I just and bought. Did you see what was in the... Um, Oh, your pen! You oh my gosh, this, that's ten years old. You gave this to me ten years ago. It's a it's a an ink pen with a um, the top of it's a body outline. This is the coolest pen. So I brought one of these home for my home back to the office for my boss. Oh, cool! And just put it on his desk and didn't say anything. <laughs> that's what you um, did to me. Just like left it on my desk. God, I'm so creepy. You're such a weirdo. Uh, You're like a cat bringing <laughs> dead things. Yes. <laughs> so. I recently took some colleagues over to the LA County coroner's office to show them the gift shop because they had no idea about it. It's this really cool old building. And I know I shared a lot of this on Instagram, but it's worth going over there. The gift shop is called skeletons in the closet. Oh, cool. And they actually have a new, um, chief medical examiner who does not like all of the body outline, uh, what would you call it? Uh, Logos, merchandise and the logo that they use. So if you can get over there to get any of it, get it because they're going to phase it all out. Um, Maybe that's why we can make some money. We can 
Go buy it all. Put it on eBay. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I special ordered um, in their last batch of beach towels, um, one of their body outline beach towels, and picked up a T-shirt because it that, has a body outline on the back. The logo on the T-shirt is really cool. It's because it's on on the um, on the, the chest. The there's yeah. a round logo that has a caduceus, the scales of justice, uh, Erlenmeyer flask. A microscope, and what's the other one there in the lower left? What do you think that is? Kind of looks like Wait, a bomb. Like is, a, yeah, it does, but I think it's another like beaker, like a flask, flask. a beaker, or something. Yeah. yeah. Um. So when I went and picked up my beach towel, I finally came in. Uh, they gave me a little free gift of a little notebook and pen. They both have the body outline logo on them. So we decided that we would raffle it off to one of our followers on social media. Um. So I'm going to shake up the hat. Do you want to pick I'm it? Pick, I'm going to stir it even more. Okay, here we got here. All right. So I put before their handle, I put whether it was off of Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. So. Oh, cool. So from Facebook, we have Madeline Cop. Yay. Yay. Ooh, what a cool Madeline. name. I, we love you. <laughs> actually. Yeah, cool. So um, DM us, Madeline, and we will get that sent out to you. Send us an address. Um, congratulations. congratulations. You got a little cool. swag. Um, so last, I just want to, again, today we are obviously recording and then a few days, I'm so excited because we're going <sighs> to be recording with Bryce and Tammy from Hollyweird. I was going to say Hollyweird, not so paranormal. <laughs> That's what you guys need to name your podcast. Hollyweird Paranormal. They're awesome. They're amazing. We have a really exciting collaboration coming up for you guys that will be released at the end of October. So this episode you're listening to now will be released early October. Um, but we're so excited. We'll probably do a little uh, Instagram live so you guys can check that out. But yeah. I, I actually can't. I, I hope even if you're not particularly into paranormal phenomena, which which I am, I'm a complete you know Mulder geek here. Um, <laughs> I I really strongly encourage everyone to go over and please give them a listen because. I have so much respect for them. They're they're super young and hip, or they're they're young and super hip, and they have. Uh-huh. Tammy uses the greatest term because just I guess what the kids are saying these days. <laughs> it's like we got the receipts. We got the right. receipts. They research everything right. to the absolute extent. They are open to the idea of phenomenon in the same way that I am. Um, you'll even get to know some weird stuff about me and some experiences I've had yeah, over the years. We'll share all that. Um, we'll share those things, but you know, they'll be the first ones in the middle of their, of their research to go, okay, this is the legend. This is the myth. Here's the truth. Right. Here is what the facts are. And sometimes it's congruent and sometimes it's wildly incongruent. Mm-hmm. And I have the utmost respect for that. I think it's so cool. And I, I recently posted something on Twitter, uh, just a, a huge congratulations to them because their hard work really shows. And if you guys can, you know, they're, they've been invited to the Pasadena Playhouse to do two live shows on October 30th and 31st. Um, they're going to follow a play, The Woman in Black, and do a live show. So they, they talked about the Pasadena Playhouse in one of their episodes as being one of the most haunted theaters, and the theater contacted them and said, you are absolutely correct, so come on down. So that that's huge, and we're so proud of them and really excited. 
for our and, club. And it should be a great play too. So if you're if you're local, oh, yeah. please look it up. I mean, uh, and if not, if you're not local, check out their podcast. Um, what else? Oh, some other things we've got in the works, which are very exciting. Um, we're um, looking to travel oh, in yes. the next few months, next next six to eight months. We're looking at a big podcast convention. Podcast Festival, the True Crime Podcast Festival. We will be there in Chicago in July. Yeah. So um, we will definitely have a, a meet and greet set up. So please come out and we'll have swag. We'll have we swag will. And if we want to do some swag that no one else has. If you guys have ideas of what you would actually like for podcast swag, let us know. We want to think outside the box a little bit for you guys. And we have lots of time to plan. So think outside the body line. Yeah. <laughs> think outside the body chalk line. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And we, um, of course you can follow us on our social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, but please that- consider going over to iTunes and giving us a rating. Um, that would be great. You know what I want to see is, um, some more ratings. I, I love reading the descriptions. I feel yeah. like I've read the same, the ones that are up there so many times. I'm like, Oh, when is there going to be a new one? And I just love it when there's a new one. We They're do. the best. Yeah, we really like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's it. We will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye folks. Bye. Bye.